All right, joining us now is uh, Steven Zonzinger, um, a person whose case you may be familiar with uh, from the show. Uh, he has just gotten out of court in what is the, the first week of his trial. I'm not going to belabor the whole backstory. You should go back and listen to my two previous interviews with Steven. But I just want to check in now, uh, now that the trial has begun, and just ask you, uh, you've been under house arrest for two years now. Uh, what did it feel like to finally be in the inside of a court um, uh, trying your case? And what have you seen so far in the opening days of this trial? Well, thank you for having me once again. Love your podcast. Basically, um, this is a very bizarre, unfair trial. It's not a trial as trials are commonly understood in the United States. There's no question that I will be convicted. There's no jury. The judge, Loretta Preska, um, is a member of the Federalist Society. Chevron's a major funder. It's the first corporate prosecution. that My prosecutor comes not from the government, but from a private law firm that has Chevron as a client. It's just really bizarre, and I would say it's unprecedented. If this were happening in another country, it would be probably condemned by our State Department, by our government. But it's happening right here in New York federal court to me. And I think it's happening as retaliation for the fact that I you know, played a leading role helping indigenous peoples win a very large pollution judgment against Chevron in the Amazon. That's why Chevron really has orchestrated this whole thing. So far, the main witnesses have been Chevron lawyers. They've admitted that Chevron has funded their work, paid first-class plane tickets to, for them to fly into New York and work with, the, with the, you know, the private corporate prosecutors. So, you know, it doesn't feel great as a defendant to be in a situation where you can't get a fair trial. On the other hand, I have a great legal team run, headed by Ron Kuby and Marty Garbus, both legendary lawyers who are helping me pro bono. And, you know, we're doing our best to get our truth out. The judge is extremely biased. She just ruled uh, yesterday that I really can't defend myself. I mean, you know, I want to get up on the stand and explain the many legal and ethical reasons that I could not comply with a couple of court orders from a U.S. judge ordering me to turn over my computer and cell phone to Chevron, which, again, is unprecedented. And she said she won't let me. That's not an issue in the case. So. We're basically fighting to lay a record for an appeal. There will be a conviction, and I believe she will try to put me in, in prison. And again, the bigger picture, it's much bigger than me. The Chevron is using this process to really try to attack and criminalize effective human rights lawyering. So it's complicated, and it's, but we're fighting it, and we're hopeful, and we're going to keep pushing to get our truth out. Well, I mean, I've been I've been following the case um, through, through your Twitter and at least the, the opening days of it or the uh, certain certain things leading up to the trial. And I just want to mention a, a few issues um, that, you know, that stand out in terms of how odd what's going on here is. Uh, the first one is, could you talk about uh, Judge Preska's decision to limit Zoom access to the trial and also withhold seating from um, sort of like international legal observers from participating or even witnessing what's taking place in this trial? Sure. So, you know, the United States, unlike, say, a country like China, we actually have public trials in this country. And Judge Preska has tried to limit access and limit public scrutiny. And she's done that by cutting off Zoom access. You know, what's odd is during COVID, every trial in America, almost every trial has had Zoom access, including my trial. This trial, I mean, this case and preach and the world could listen via Zoom. 
And this is particularly important in this case, where there's so much public scrutiny because the process is so unfair, combined with the fact that my clients in Ecuador cannot travel here to be here in person. So cutting off Zoom access to me was inappropriate and was nothing more than an attempt by Judge Prescott to limit public scrutiny because she knows this case has already been decided even before the evidence is being heard. So cutting off Zoom access is bad. She was disrespectful. There's a team of international trial monitors headed by uh, Ambassador, U.S. Ambassador Stephen Rapp. He's one of the leading war crimes prosecutors in the world. He worked at the International Criminal Court for many years. President Obama appointed him as an ambassador. And he's, monitor, he's a lawyer monitoring the trial with a, another team of prominent lawyers. And she wouldn't even, they wrote a letter asking for seats in the courtroom or Zoom access, and she just didn't respond. I mean, for months, she finally responded and gave them, gave them nothing that they requested. So, you know, there's a real effort to limit access. And I think it's for the obvious reason that when you're engaging in this kind of unfair process, you don't want scrutiny. And that's what's happening. Um, the other issue uh, that I was hoping you could explain to me was, I think like a, a day or two before the trial started, was it members of the legal team prosecuting you who removed themselves from the trial to avoid being put on the witness stand or like Chevron attorneys who uh, dropped out of the case in some way to avoid being put under oath? Yeah, that's amazing. So first of all, this is the Chevron show, this trial it's through and through. I mean, again, the prosecutor is a private Chevron lawyer. The judge has links to Chevron. And the main witnesses are Chevron lawyers from the law firm that Chevron has literally paid hundreds of millions of dollars to over the last 10 years to target me. Law firms called Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher. And the two lead lawyers who have probably collectively built $200 million to Chevron to try to destroy me over the last several years were, were slated to be the lead witnesses. And they backed out. And they backed out after we found out that a few years ago, they had tried to get me criminally prosecuted by the Southern District of New York, the federal prosecutor here, who turned them down then. And they tried to do it again with this case. And, he, and that, that office turned them down for a second time. There were probably other efforts that didn't succeed. So what they did, because they, they've obviously had a 10-year plan to lock me up, is they went directly to this private law firm via a judge who appointed the law firm bypassing the regular federal prosecutor and the law firm has Chevron as a client. I mean, you just can't make this stuff up. I mean, this sounds really like something that would happen in no disrespect to all the Russians I know, but this is something Putin would do or Erdogan in Turkey. And I'm telling you, it is happening right here in federal court in the United States. Um, and then like, as, as far as your, your legal defense, which you said is, is being headed by two pretty legendary attorneys, Ron Cuba, uh, sorry, Ron Cuby and, uh, and Martin Garbus, um, like uh, what, what are the ways in which they have been sort of hamstrung by the judge or just sort of, uh, denied the ability to present a defense, um, on your behalf in this case? Well, well, thank you for the question. I mean, first of all, they're doing a great job working with what she's giving them to get the truth out. Um, however, there's a, probably 50% of our story, our narrative, our facts that she's not letting in even more. I mean, basically she ruled that I simply, whatever I was doing to fight for my clients in Ecuador that contradicted 
the orders of Judge Kaplan. And again, the, the main order is you order me to turn over my attorney-client protected, privileged, confidential case file to Chevron. Unprecedented. I've never heard of that. No lawyer has heard of a lawyer being or, ordered to turn over his privileged information to his adversary in the middle of a case. It's never happened. So when I said, look, I can't do that because of my ethical obligations to my clients, please allow me to appeal it. And he kept delaying and delaying and trying to undermine my ability to appeal. I finally got my appeal up and apparently he got so angry about that. He charged you with criminal contempt and the view of judge Preska, who, oh, by the way, was appointed by judge Kaplan to oversee my case. Um, usually cases are assigned randomly in New York, not this one. He appointed the judge and the prosecutor, but again, both with connections to Chevron. Um, she has a very narrow view. She basically says, you're guilty if a judge orders you to do something and you don't comply, even if it's blatantly unlawful. And that to me is what happens in authoritarian or totalitarian countries. That's not the United States. There have been thousands of lawyers I've learned well who have challenged what I was challenging, which is a civil discovery order. Discovery meaning get information and have never been charged criminally, ever, until me. And again, I think they're targeting me because of our success in winning a big judgment against Chevron. Uh, you mentioned just a second ago that um, the Southern District of New York had declined to prosecute you on two different occasions for this same thing. Uh, are you trying to, are you going to make any effort to uh, call the district attorneys or like the representatives of the Southern District who made the decision not to prosecute you in the first place to explain why they didn't? It's interesting you ask. We have sought to call Je Jeffrey Berman, who was the head of that office when they declined to prosecute me. And we're, you know, Chevron, or I should say the Chevron link prosecutor is opposing it. You know, Judge Preska is taking a dim view of the importance of this critical witness as a way to sort of keep out the narrative that the professionals in our society who we entrust with the power to determine who gets prosecuted, who potentially will be deprived of their liberty and go to prison, those professionals refuse to prosecute this case. They refuse. So she doesn't want that story told in her court. And even though we're trying to get Mr. Berman in, it's unclear if it's going to happen. And, and, but, you know, again, this is all improving our prospects on appeal. Because the more she does to shut down my ability to explain my defense and to present witnesses on my behalf, the more unfair it's going to appear and the more likely it will be that she will be reversed on appeal. But the problem I have is she could find me guilty and sentence me to prison. Appeal is going to take 12 to 18 months. And I might end up in prison even if I win an appeal. Because I think that's the goal here. Chevron wants yeah. me silenced and locked up so I cannot work on this case. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. And I think if they were attempting to uh, have a judgment that, you know, withstood scrutiny, um, they wouldn't be, you know, proceeding with this, this absolute, this, this, you know, open travesty that is taking place right now. I think yeah, that's a, that's the a, goal yeah. is to, is to, to silence you and to just, uh, you know, I'm sorry, well, to be frankly, fuck your life up as much as possible to make an example of anyone else who wants to come follow in your footsteps. That's exactly right. And again, I'll repeat, this is much larger than me. You know what this is really about? It's about the ability of the, uh, our people who do the frontline human rights work and environmental justice work to hold the fossil fuel industry accountable for its pollution and its destruction of the planet. 
And this is a big judgment. We want a $10 billion judgment on behalf of communities in Ecuador, rural communities, indigenous groups. They, they just can't handle it. And they are spending literally billions, rather than pay the judgment or try to settle the case, they're spending all that money that could go to a cleanup in Ecuador where people are dying from their, literally they dumped 16 billion gallons of cancer-causing waste into indigenous lands. People are dying and they're spending $3 billion on 60 law firms and 2,000 lawyers to attack me and my colleagues. I mean, that's just a moral outrage. And, and the world needs to know about this. You know, there's people in Ecuador suffering. I'm their lawyer. They've been deprived of their main lawyer. Luckily, there's other lawyers working on this. So, you know, Chevron still faces great risk. But it's obvious what's happening here. They are trying to intimidate anyone from doing this critically important work, which is necessary to save the planet. You know, I know. And the last time I spoke to you, um, we talked about the the lack of media coverage of your case, the lack of interest from, you know, uh, from any major journalistic outlets, certainly the New York Times or any of the national or even local press and a, a case that is happening 20 blocks away from the New York Times building. Since then, I have noticed that some people have begun to take an interest and mention your your name in print. But from the other side, from the people attacking you, and I'm talking particularly about an editorial in the Wall Street Journal and in a piece in the National Review, both of which um, tried to paint you as some kind of ambulance chaser or criminal. And I think there's, there's something grim in uh, calling you an ambulance chaser as it relates to this case, because you're talking about you know thousands and thousands of ambulances to chase because of what Chevron did in Ecuador. That's totally true. But you know what's interesting? When you get close to their money when they're feeling the heat is when these articles they start planning yeah. these articles and you know the national review guy is basically i mean they fund the national review he's completely right wing and not an objective reporter and there's like two or three reporters just sort of do their bidding i mean luckily we've had some fairly decent press in the nation the intercept the independent press but the real tragedy to me new york times has totally avoided this story I mean, they're reporting on human rights issues all over the world. And there's literally one, a 30 minute walk from their newsroom, a major human rights problem in America, you know, where I'm locked in my home for two years on a misdemeanor without being convicted. They have not yet to do the story. Yeah, but I mean, but but to your point about how like the, the negative press are attacks on you and on this case, I mean, I, I think that, you know, you, you rightly interpret this as a good sign, right? Because, I mean, like, if, if it were all smooth sailing for them, they wouldn't mention you at all. If they had I, this I totally stitched up, they wouldn't have to write an editorial in the Wall Street Journal. That's completely the case. I mean, whenever they start attacking me, and this is crazy, and I'm honored to say this, I've had literally, I've been attacked eight times by the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal in these unsigned <laughs> editorials. Eight you should frame every one of them. And like, that's a badge of honor for a human rights lawyer who's successful. But, you know, what it does tell me is we're winning. I mean, we are winning. And I don't think this would be happening if this was what they, I mean, they claim this whole thing is a fraud. Well, if it's such a fraud, why are they spending billions of dollars to attack? Me? Why are they even worried about it? And if it's such it's, a clear cut, if it's such a clear cut case of fraud as well, why isn't the New York state district attorney or federal, any of the federal or New York state district attorneys prosecuting you? Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, the reality is there was a fraud. You know what the fraud was? It was their fraud where they fr tried to frame me with paid witness testimony here in New York, and they continue to attack me, and they're orchestrating and really directly prosecuting a criminal case in contravention of, of you know, our Constitution. I mean, you know, the other issue, Will, is 
I've asked the Department of Justice, the Biden administration's Department of Justice, Merrick Garland, to step in and take the prosecution out of the hands of this private Chevron law firm and prosecute me directly. It's bizarre, right? I'm probably the only lawyer in America who wants to be prosecuted by the Department of Justice right now. <laughs> yeah. but, I, but I need to deal with professionals. I mean, I wouldn't be locked up if I had the DOJ as my prosecutor. I mean, they would deal with me professionally. And frankly, they'd probably dismiss the case because they, ne- they didn't want to take it. So you got to get it out of the hands of the private Chevron law firm. There should not be private, criminal, corporate prosecutions in the United States of America. This is new territory. You know, for people worried about corporate control, our society, the Koch brothers, all that money that's been spent over the last decades, you know, the Federalist Society, it's all happening through my case. In other words, all that influence that was bought and created over the last several decades in this country is being used to control a prosecution or for Chevron to control this prosecution. It's not right. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's that's what fascinates me about your case. And that's why I think it's uh, so vitally important that more people know about it. But I mean, I guess just in in, in closing, like it, it seems that like from your perspective, at least for the short term future, the outlook is pretty bleak. But I mean, are, are you and, and your attorneys, you, you, you still in this interview and like to me, you seem uh, fairly confident that in the long term you will prevail in this matter. I believe we have well two issues. We have won the case, and they the fact they're taking such extreme measures to me is the surest sign that we have been successful. Okay. However, we have not collected the money Chevron owes yet. $10 billion to clean up the Amazon so people can live with dignity and lives can be saved. And so we haven't completely finished the job, and that's what they're trying to prevent. Um, but I am hopeful. I'm optimistic. Personally, I feel strong and resilient. Well, I've by the way, we've gotten so much support because of this crazy overreach of a prosecution. You know, I have now I have 68 Nobel laureates demanding my release. They also wrote a letter to Merrick Garland demanding he take over the prosecution. You know, hundreds, thousands of lawyers around the world, bar associations, the, the International Association of Democratic Lawyers, law professors like Charlie Messon from Harvard. I mean, it's incredible. And like, I didn't have this support before. And because of this crazy prosecution that everyone is bothered by, the support has been growing and growing. And I think we're going to, the communities of Ecuador are going to win. Now, I might have to pay, and I am paying a heavy personal price right now, but I'm also working with my clients to build a movement. And I think ultimately that movement will hold Chevron not just partially accountable, but fully accountable. I guess in closing, for um, anyone who's listening to this and is interested in your case, um, is there a way that you would recommend them um, show their support to you or uh, a way to contact uh, Biden's Justice Department on your behalf? And then also, if they are in the greater New York City tri-state area, if they would like to show up at the courthouse, um, how would you recommend doing that? Or like when and where should they yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. show Thank some support? You. Thank you. Okay, so for those who live in New York, come to my trial. On Monday morning of next week, which is the beginning of the defense case, we're going to have a rally in front of the federal courthouse in, in sorry for the noise, in downtown Manhattan at, um, at 8.30 in the morning, and that's at 500 Pearl Street. The other thing people can do is go to our website. It's called freedonziger.org, F-R-E-E-D-O-N-Z-I-G-E-R, and join the campaign. 
There's information about a petition to Merrick Garland. You can call the Department of Justice, the numbers there, and you can also help us uh, by contributing if you're so inclined to our legal defense fund, because obviously it takes money to deal with these monsters. But just the important thing is go to the website, Free Donziger and freedonziger.org, and just join our effort in any way you can. That's what we need. So, but if you are in New York City uh, this upcoming Monday, 8.30 in the morning, 500 Pearl Street, um, a, there'll be a rally in support of you and uh, the people of Ecuador, really. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we just, we need support and we need to continue to build. This is a citizens movement and that's the only thing that will hold these courts and Chevron ultimately accountable and stop this abuse of power, which is really what it is. Well, Stephen, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, you are literally walking down the street in Manhattan right now, having just gotten out of the courthouse. I want to thank you for taking the time to check in with us uh, and extend you uh, all our admiration and support here from the podcast family and our listenership. And uh, just uh, wish you the best um, and uh, stay strong and good luck in uh, fighting this uh, ongoing uh, travesty of justice. Thanks so much, Will, for the opportunity to speak once again on this platform. I love your work. Keep up the great work. I'll keep you posted. Thanks a lot. Stephen Donzinger, ladies and gentlemen. Yep, it was a major genre of movies. And it was like, it was a major genre of movies for adults that were like big, big did Bafo B.O. And they all had really good casts. <laughs> and uh, I mean, like they're, I say for adults. I mean, like, the, you know, morality of these movies are for children. But at least they had the veneer of like something, something sophisticated. So like, it's yeah, that middle tier film they don't yeah. make anymore. Yeah. The, the courtroom drama is inherently cinematic in the way that like boxing is kind of that because you've got a situation where you like formally are set up to have people interact with each other in a dramatic way. Yeah. They're literally like on a stand yelling at each other. That's where that's why that's where Sorkin got his yeah. start because yeah. that model of, of conflict serves that sort of filmmaker and or storyteller well. And it was well, like, not inherently think- cinematic because you're just kind of in a room, but inherently dramatic. Yeah. And it's like I think the point Brendan made about a few good men is that like it, it suits Sorkin so well because like a courtroom setting is like the one instance in life where like epically owning someone with words and like a like a pithy <laughs> monologue actually has consequences. Like yep, if there, there are real stakes a involved jury in it. that can make a yeah. ruling based on what you're saying. So yeah, so uh, I've been going through like and the John Grisham thriller drama of which they seemingly made one of every year during the nineties. Yeah. As a whole, as a candidate of movies, they are all pretty solid to like quite good as movies. Like they, they, they almost all deliver. Like I watched uh, The Firm. I get paid to be suspicious when I got nothing to be suspicious about. And then uh, A Time to Kill last night. And, you know, like I, look, I know they've talked about A Time to Kill on Come Town, but I, I watched it for the first time since I saw it in the theaters. And it is one of the most insane movies of the 1990s. It is, <laughs> it is, it is definitely the wettest film of the decade. There's no question about that. It, like, and it's actually very telling. It's, not, it's, it's the very last scene of the movie where Matthew McConaughey gets invited to the cookout and like racism is solved <laughs> when he says, yep. I just wanted our kids to play together, is the yep. only scene in that movie where Sam Jackson is not sweating like Ewing at the foul line. <laughs> that they didn't just hose him down with a mist before every scene of that movie. 
But, uh, but every like, uh, Ed McConaughey's hair is just like in ringlets. He's like George yeah. Pickett. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, I mean, no, it's it set in Mississippi. And like it's set in Mississippi, but the filmmakers like Joel, Schu- like they they can't decide whether it's Mississippi of 1996 or 1906. Like it, it doesn't it's, matter. It's Interchangeable. Very confu- yeah, and I'm sure that's sort uh, of like if you're a Hollywood sicko, you Mississippi has not changed uh, between I don't know 2021 and 1883. Yeah, I mean I'm sure that's deliberate because like the whole point of the movie is that like in the South, you know, like uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. But like it's it's like it's this deliberate like. Like like the time dilates, so like the events of the last century, like just all take place again in a time to kill. It's <laughs> great. It, it, the sign of progress, though, is that uh, vigilante murdering of people. Uh, it's okay yeah. if it's race neutral. Yeah. And, <laughs> if and black like, people have a right to do lynchings, then we have made progress. That that is the, that was the '90s uh, consensus we'd come to is that we're not actually changing any of our putative and sadistic institutions and instincts, but we are on the path towards making them uh, colorblind. Oh, I, I've I not seen this film, but isn't the M- Matthew McConaughey's character basically like, yes, the real justice is when we murder everyone equally through the death penalty? Yeah, no, no. There's a scene in it where he's like lecturing Sandra Bullock, who like wants to be his intern, and she's like, "I hope to have a, I hope to have a promising career abolishing the death penalty." And he's like, he's like, "Oh, he's like, I'll tell you some. Let, let me tell you some sugar here in the South. Uh, killing people in the gas chamber makes us as pleased as a cat eating a peach pie." And then he, there's a scene <laughs> where he says to her that the only problem with the death penalty is that we don't use it enough. And she's like sort of shocked by this, but like it is like like pure like it's like the height of like peak '90s like liberal like race movies. But yeah, Matt, like the message in the movie is that it is the most pro death penalty movie ever made. Now say a, a crack dealer guns down an undercover cop. Well, you strap his ass to the chair, flick the switch. You know, for some reason, I I thought you were a liberal. Well, I am a liberal, Roy. What I am not is a card-carrying ACLU radical. Absolutely, which is what makes Sandra Bullock's character so funny. She's this ACLU lawyer who wants to fight for uh, uh, justice, and her argument is is that this guy should get to do a double murder, revenge-style, uh, extrajudicially, because he's black. <laughs> I see, like I, like I said, I hadn't seen this movie since I saw it in the theater years ago, and I, I had totally forgotten that, like, I, I thought the two, like, the evil, like, racist guys in the beginning... I thought they raped and murdered Samuel L. Jackson's daughter, but like she survives, and it's like a really awful, like horrible rape scene. Oh, they it's try- gross. They they like they tried to kill her, but like she survives, and then like I thought like oh like they're they're acquitted, and like that's when Samuel L. Jackson murders nope. him. Like no, they were just getting arraigned. They were just walking they to were be arraigned to for the first time ever, and it's just sort of assumed that like in in you know even in Mississippi in 1996, like the judge would just be like, Your Honor, Your Honor, this is just a case of boys being boys. So there's like like some like ten year old girl in the trunk of their car. Like I'm pretty sure yeah. I'm pretty sure the South loves sending people to the death chamber. Like regardless of I mean I know it's 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 widely like uh, disproportionately used in favor of black like towards black people. But like it just the morality of this movie is so confused because they're like yeah if you're if you're reasonably sure about the guilt of a, a party who's like you know wronged you personally yeah like murdering them is like okay. John Grisham was like the liberal. Uh, brain of the 90s his his shit was so amazing his views on everything because he did he did that actually book that book he wrote and it was rejected by all publishers it only got published after the firm came out and was a big hit then he was able to get it released because yes it's an insane book 
and an insane movie. Uh, and, and he's got like he's the full '90s like liberal nanny state Sorkin thing of like we're going to have a race neutral panopticon because remember he did the book Runaway Jury, which was about the tobacco industry, but then in the movie became it's about, about the, gun, the guns. gun industry. Yeah, uh, he also uh, helped somebody sue Oliver Stone for making natural born killers. Because a couple of uh, teenagers went on a crime spree and killed somebody at a convenience store, and Grisham provided legal aid to the family that was suing Oliver Stone Insane. for inspiring them to do it. Ridiculous. Gun control, anti-tobacco, like he was the guy. And he was, of course, a fucking trial lawyer, because in the 90s, that is the decade when the, the, the Democratic Party, looking for like a, a, a stable constituency to, to get policy from now that labor was gone, settled on trial lawyers. The, the hero of every John Grisham movie is just a thinly veiled analog for himself. They're all, they're all these like bright, handsome young attorneys from the South who like come from sort of a humble background but are like star law students. And then they get sort of disillusioned by like the practice of law and, and you know, what scum most attorneys and law firms are and like, you know, how corrupt the justice system is. But then invariably by the end of it, they, 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 they really begin to know the law again and they fall in love with it. And like, that's when they become the biggest hero of all. Uh, I actually have a news peg for this discussion, uh, which is uh, from Mark Yarm in the wall street journal. Why politicians love writing thrillers. And it's centered around uh, both Stacey Abrams and Hillary Clinton announcing Fiction thriller books that they are coming out. This is Stacey Abrams, who has Jesus done uh, Christ, who has done uh, auth- written romantic fiction, but not under her real name. I believe this is her first book under her own name, called "While Justice Sleeps," which centers on Avery Keene, a law clerk for a U.S. Supreme Court justice. When the justice falls into a coma, Keene must unravel a high-level conspiracy. And Clinton's book, Hillary Clinton's book. Remember, Bill Clinton wrote those two oh, James, James Patterson, Patterson novels. The president, the president is, missing. is missing. The president is missing. And the president's daughter. And then uh, Hillary is writing State of Terror, a collaboration with a friend, with friend and mystery novelist Louise Penny, which concerns a novice secretary of state, which is a funny concept. It's like, oh, geez, it's my first day on work at the secretary of state. Trying to get to the bottom of a series of terrorist attacks. That's not their job. <laughs> what the, what the, they have to, <laughs> the Secretary of State doesn't get to the bottom of terror attacks. No, no they, they issue state for Christ's sake. No wonder she was. So, no wonder she was so shitty at that job. Yeah, no. The, she, was, she was trying state, to unravel the clues. The Secretary of State just issues statements condemning terrorist attacks unless Israel or Saudi Arabia does it. Then, then they right, then they course. defend them. Then they have to defend yeah. them. But, um, well, I'm really hoping that Hillary's novel is, is kind of an Air Force One situation, which puts the Secretary of State in a position where they have to, like, pick up a gun and actually, like, get to the bottom of the ongoing terrorist attack, which is the, you know, the taking over the Air Force One get or whatever. Get off but, you of know. Jeffrey Epstein's plane! <laughs> <laughs> get off of my island! <laughs> um just just one just one more memory from A Time to Kill. There is like probably the best scene in the movie other than Matthew McConaughey's monologue at the end of the movie, which by 1996 standards was the most mind-blowing thing ever put on film. It was like when he's just like, now imagine that girl is white. And they're like, what? I never even considered that. Um, right up there with White Man's Burden starring yeah, John Travolta. It, Anyway, I'm uh, probably going to continue tonight with uh, The Rainmaker, you know, sort of a, a Francis Ford Coppola work for hire film that I remember being uh, quite very good. They, I mean, like, yeah. all these movies have great casts. That's the other thing with these 
these legal thrillers, they, 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 they allowed room to breathe for like a big cast, like a big talented cast of like 10 or I 8 think people. Gene Hackman was in, I think, three of them. Uh, the Chamber, uh, the, I think the, uh, the, the Firm, and, and Runaway, uh, Runaway Jury. Jury. Runaway yeah. Jury. That's, Runaway Jury is, I think, the only one that I, of these types of things I saw, remember seeing in theaters. Gene Hackman was that if there was if it was a grown up movie if it was a movie that your parents could watch like get a babysitter he was there. that's right that's 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 <laughs> absolutely true and now he's gone and those movies are gone with him yep. he he really his retirement heralded the end of an entire cinematic genre Hackman just now we're only ha- gonna get a fucking uh we're only gonna get another tense courtroom drama if like Aquaman sues the Flash or something. <laughs> Uh, Hackman just is, as an actor, I mean, he's so great. He just has this, like, how to describe it? A sort of, like, an affable malice to him in, in every, in every moment. Yes. yes, he's very, he is, he is very uh, appealing, and you, like, you have sympathy for it, but he's also yeah, scary. There's this, yeah, there's this undercurrent of, like, malevolence to him yeah. that, that, that he does so well. Um, uh, let's see. Okay, it's, it's, uh, it's, okay, let's officially start the show. Hello, it's Chapo. <laughs> Um, it's me, Matt, and Chris today. Chris is filling in because uh, Felix, he got his his second vaccination. He's he's out today, uh, recovering. And he's from uh, the been effects. cured of his autism. Congratulations, Felix. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey guys, glad to be on the show. I had a lovely uh, you know Brooklyn day. It's a nice day out here, so I took my uh, you know my bougie Brooklyn tote bag down to the gas station, filled it up with some <laughs> uh, unleaded. <laughs> Folks. Brought it back. It's sitting in my um, in my closet right now. I'm feeling a little lightheaded, but hopefully we'll get through this. Folks, the gas stations are running out of gas. Go now. So stop listening to this. Go to the nearest gas station and fill up your backpack with uh, unleaded. Take your Tupperwares, your yeah, your Camelbacks, like anything that can contain gasoline, and just just get as much as you can while it's good. Uh, I mean, are these are these like is the shit I've been seeing online about this? Is this just people recycling old footage of, of nitwits at gas stations? I think it like, probably trash bags? is mostly that. Like, what what is uh, up with this fear? Fave about, star gas station fails. Yeah, what, what is what is up with this fear about about gas shortages? Is this a real thing? Well, there was a there was a ransomware attack on a pipeline. Oh right, right, right. Which so led that's to, where this thing comes from. Okay. And, uh, and like beyond that, I have no idea how real it is. I don't know how real anything is. I, real isn't a thing. <laughs> there is no real. We are all just floating in a sea only mo- of only movies are real. signifiers. Uh, I saw some pictures of people filling up gas things. Is it new? Is it old? Is it a propaganda op to make you call? No, there's nothing to worry about, citizen. Shortages? Collapses of the supply chain? That could never happen. Please continue consuming and being responsible. I don't know. But there... But there is also a, a certain type of person who is just like absolutely champing at the bit to hoard gasoline. That's like true. At the and second you hear that, like one headline that's like, "Hey, something," you know, a, a, a car ran into a pipeline somewhere. Somewhere minor damages. They're like, fill up that ten thousand gallon drum hey, for, of gasoline. If it's they're time. wrong, they still have a bunch of gas. If they're if they're uh, right, then everyone then they look pretty smart and they're able to yeah. uh, def- defend their gasoline hoard. <laughs> Everyone's money is real good right now, so just go to the gas station and just you know just just pull that trigger and just see the yeah, you know, just, you, that people forget about this. You don't actually have to have the nozzle in into the gas tank of your car when you pull it. Yeah, it's true. You can put it anywhere. You, you can, put that you can stimmy squ- money on the fucking pavement. <laughs> you can squirt that gas wherever you want. As you, soon as you put your cash or credit card into the machine, that's your gas. You can do whatever yeah, you want absolutely. with it. Absolutely. Anyway, uh, I guess I guess news peg. Uh, now I guess like the whole team is uh, fully vaccinated now. 
Yep. Everyone, everyone is now, and we're now, we've got whatever, whatever, whatever version of the vaccine. We, we all got it coursing through our bodies. And new, uh, here, here's the news angle for this. Today, the CDC officially announced uh, if you're vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask uh, anywhere anymore, except in very like specific you know, scenarios. To which I say, nobody can get mad at me. That, that's it. That's the only standard I'm <laughs> applying here. I'm not trying to scold people who still feel nervous about not wearing a mask in public or anything like that. I'm not trying to like, uh, you, you live your life the way you want to live it, do whatever you want to do, but uh, to feel safe or, you know, just, just no one can get mad at me. That's it. Yep. That's really, that's the point. You don't that's have, why I got the like, vaccine. Look, enjoy wearing your mask. I get it. Why you might feel, comp- but just you can't get mad at me. You can't give me a look. Mm. Nope. You, you've, lost the, you've lost your privilege to do that. And that's it. And, you know, like, and obviously, like, but before vaccines are widely available, I mean, you know, people had a good reason to, you know, scold people in, you know, grocery stores or whatever for, you know, just coughing into the air or whatever. But if, if you're vaccinated now, it's just like, dude, like, just take a load off. Chill out, dude. Summer's here. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, time to, it's, time to, it's time to breathe air again. It's time to start shedding that vaccine. I, I can't wait to fa- start virally shedding all over the place like a goddamn <laughs> Great Dane. So, like, in, in, in New York City right now, did you see the thing, like, Bill de Blasio's, like, Shake Shack will give you free French fries if you have a vaccination card? Which did is you like, guys see that on. video? It's that, very not, funny. That might be the... Yeah. He's just munching it fries. It might be the funniest thing that Bill de Blasio's ever done. I'll put in a clip of it. It's, it's very great. Free fries when you get vaccinated? Um, I got vaccinated. You're saying I could get this? You delicious fries? Wait a minute. But there's also a, a burger element to this. And I mean, in like, come Ohio, they're oh, yeah, uh, it's giving, a million dollar. Uh, they're doing a lottery. It's a million, million dollar a, lottery. A million bucks for five people who get uh, vaccinated. It, it's like a million dollars a week too. They're doing they're doing yeah. five of these drawings for a million dollars. Yep. They're just making it like the lottery. And like New York City, it's like Shake Shack. You know, come on, at least have a burg or a shake. I mean, the fries just as an inducement. The, the, they're to, not the uh, yeah. They're not, not the, the star marquee, of the menu there. It's not the marquee item that you know. Yeah people are really going to plump for and you know like to the a free shake that, would be pretty good and now there's things like you get a shot in a beer or you get like a free joint in states where that's legal now and you know like i guess like you know these inducements or whatever like if that's what it takes then i'm all for it but like especially the million dollar ohio jackpot is so funny to me because just like i understand why they're doing it but like only in america we're like we're faced with a global pandemic that's killed millions and then they're like, there's now a vaccine that's effective and they're giving it away for free. And it's like, let's be honest, not that hard to fucking get for yourself. You, they still have to be like, <laughs> oh, you, you have to get rewards and prizes for doing it. Like, like that's how you yeah, have to fucking like goose people into doing it. The, the, I would want to know the people, I want to know about any of the people who aren't getting the vaccine. Because presumably these kind of inducements are for people who are just sort of lazy, uh, don't yeah. want to go through the hassle of it. Uh, and aren't just for whatever reason don't really aren't that scared of COVID the way other people have internalized it. But I would like to meet the people who are like, uh, this is a Bill Gates foreskin brain uh, <laughs> control device. But what's this about a million dollars? I mean, I'll be controlled uh, electronically by Bill Gates if I have a million dollars. I really won't care. I mean, no, like I mean, obviously, I think like you know, 
a lot of vaccine hysteria is is for is for dum dums. And but you know, I mean, you can be skeptical of the way vaccines are produced, and certainly of the you know industry that produces them. But like Matt, a point you made the other day that stuck with me is like it is pretty funny in 2021 that Americans, like for a large chunk of Americans, like this new vaccine is like the one line that they won't cross about what's this inside what their, their body. Our bo- the average American body is 90 percent corn syrup. Pesticides, Roundup, uh, microplastics. And, uh, DuPont. <laughs> DuPont we are literally made out of chemicals that have been pumped into our bodies without us ever having any consent to it. But now this this shot is the fucking one thing we're not going to allow into our bodies. It's like, yeah, if you fucking most Americans, if you tried to, you could write your name in the lawn. You don't even need snow. <laughs> you just kill a line that is your name with the fucking amount of Roundup in your piss. I did yeah, like no, the it, uh, it, handful of stories about uh, people who are now wearing masks to go see their vaccinated relatives to prevent oh, them right. from inhaling the vaccine. Yeah, no, no. The, for the, the anti-vax, like antivirus, Bill Gates, pandemic people, they've now reverse engineered a world in which that you can contract the vaccine from vaccinated people and the way to protect yourself from that is by wearing a mask and social distancing from them it's and so we'll brilliant. Get a beautiful beautiful flip where in 2020 the last half of 2021 everyone wearing a mask is a person who doesn't believe that the va- that the virus was real but thinks that the vaccine is going to kill them and everyone who doesn't have a mask uh is normal and that's perfect well, and it's that good. Works, I mean, too. Yeah, it's it a works. beautiful. It's like it is. It is a self-correcting system. <laughs> uh, it is. It does lead me to the question of if they did have an aerosolized vaccine, would they be allowed to just, uh, you know, uh, do chemtrails to us? Probably. I mean, would, that's would, assuming we, they don't. Is that what the policy would be? Yeah. Well, I, I, I don't know if I said this on the show, but I am pro chemtrails. I really do want them oh, to be yeah, releasing a low grade of it. Valium, uh, antidepressants, and anti-anxieties into the upper stratosphere, and just just keeping me on a one percent of that at all time. If I go to a place and don't see chemtrails, I, I start feeling anxious. My skin gets itchy. Uh, you know, I, my my hands start twitching. Think of it as aerial I need, I need vibe to see those curation. Streaks. Yeah, exactly. It's like More okay, like uh, everyone's everyone's a little tense here. Oh wait a minute, what's that? That's a chemtrail there. Oh, we're we're about to feel good. <laughs> Somebody put yeah. on some Daft Punk. <laughs> <laughs> It's like fluoride in the water. Like, I mean, supposedly yeah, yeah, exactly. it makes your teeth stronger, but if there's something else going on in there, I say good. What difference does it make? <laughs> you have no control over any of yeah. this. You have the, the, the stuff that they put in your body is the one thing that you have no control over. Just relax. So, yeah, just chill. It's like, I mean, and hey, maybe like half the vaccines are just sugar water to begin with. I mean, I think that's probably how they got them out so quickly. <laughs> Honestly, I would be surprised. I, I got the J&J one shot, one kill, and I had zero effects at all. Like, I wasn't yeah. even, a, I didn't, my arm didn't even hurt afterwards. Like, you I should be worried get, about that, Matt. You should be concerned. I am a little bit worried. Because it's like, I felt like, just I, give me some, I felt like, me like a Mickey? What the fuck? The first time, my arm was sore for like. 36 hours like really yeah. sore and i felt like pretty like a low grade like uh, cold for like you know about 12 six, 18 hours um the second one though put me on my ass for like two days i felt like absolute shit yeah i felt nothing i was wasn't even sleepy 
So well, yeah, go. that probably means I'm about to explode. Okay. Well, here here's a good here's a good segue. Uh, as long as you're talking about um, uh, paranoia and vague, unspecified symptoms of you know what could or could not be something deadly. Uh, there's a New York Times article today following up with the uh, the case of the uh, mysterious Cuban brain death ray that CIA agents <laughs> keep being afflicted with. And I mean, we've I think we've talked about this story before. It's just like these stories keep coming up from like. Uh, American like government officials in like Havana or China or whatever, where they like stay in their hotel room and then they get like overcome with nausea or like migraines or something like that. And I mean, the obvious, most obvious explanation for that is that the communists have developed some sort of invisible ray gun that cooks the brains of American uh, government officials. And a friend of mine just described this to me as uh, Morgellons for NATSEC people, and that's exactly what this is. (laughs) Uh, there's a funny article in the New York Times uh, covering this. It says here, this is just from today. It says, um, uh, mysterious ailments are said to be more widespread among U.S. personnel. The Biden administration has begun to begun more aggressively investigating episodes that left spies, diplomats, soldiers, and others with brain injuries. Uh, <laughs> uh, mysterious episodes that cause brain injuries in spies, diplomats, soldiers, and other U.S. personnel overseas starting five years ago now number more than 130 people far more than previously known, according to current and former officials. The number of cases within the CIA, the State Department, and Defense Department, and elsewhere spurred broad concern in the Biden administration. The initial policy publicly confirmed cases were concentrated in China and Cuba and numbered about 60, not including a group of injured CIA officers whose total is not yet public. I mean... I have to say, like, this is one of those things that is 1,000% bullshit, but I kind of wish it was true. Because if our CIA ops are getting their brains melted by um, invisible ray gun radiation by Cuban and Chinese spies, I got to say, all in the game, all in the game. Yeah. Especially <laughs> since this is apparently a, 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 a technology that no one can explain how would work. It's like Theranos. Like, it, it, would be, it would be like future shit. It would be like a weapon from Tenet that got sent back in time. <laughs> makes, makes more sense than that bullshit. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> oh, by the way, I just I watched it. I oh, watched yeah? Tenet. Pretty good, right? I kind right? of liked it because it's like, a, it's like cinematic hostile architecture. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. You, can't, you don't feel comfortable in a single moment. And, like, but that's like, like, clearly intentional. I, and like, so at no point is your brain able to like make something that coherent in its affect i gotta give it credit no you're that, god that is such a i was trying to like like figure out like what watching like the like the backwards like all what watching the climax of that movie where it's just like two groups of people one going forward in time one going in backward in time fighting a war with each other trying to parse in my head what the fuck was going on or why any of this was happening was like trying to like lie down on a park bench or sit in the subway yeah it's like you're sitting on your (laughs) keys while watching the movie you just keep moving around like what and i like i like i just nolan hates people and i respect that (laughs) (laughs) Uh, he, he I also, by the way, thought that devices. Uh, his bad guy had the best motivation of any bad guy in a movie in a long time. I like, see. I, th- I thought coherent. it was so corny. I thought it was so nope. corny. He's nope. just like, oh, I to want. Me, I want everything to not exist if I die. That's what they want. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> that's what rich. That's that is the narcissistic endpoint. That is what makes dying unbearable if you have oriented your life around acquisition is the idea that anything will happen after you're gone yeah but he, he just had to be a russian you know <laughs> yeah well that <laughs> yeah all right so just a, a little more from this article here it says 
Uh, since December, at least three CIA officers have reported serious health effects from previous from episodes overseas. Aww. Their, their imposter syndrome was <laughs> flaring up again. I think a, that this whole thing is a uh, a big like foreign posted CIA agents. I shouldn't be alone right now. Message uh, that just got way out of control. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one occurred within the past two weeks, and all have required the officers undergo outpatient treatment at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center or other facilities. And in one case in 2019 that has not previously been reported, a military officer serving overseas pulled his vehicle into an intersection, then was overcome by nausea and headaches, according to four current and former officials briefed on the events. His two-year-old son sitting in the back seat began crying. After the officer pulled away from the intersection, his nausea stopped and the child stopped crying. Well, I mean, I, I don't know what more evidence you need. This is invisible death rays, clearly. I mean, I can't, think, I can't think of any other thing that would account for feeling, uh, having a headache or being nauseous in traffic or having a two-year-old child cry in a car. <laughs> we need to know more information about this case, though, before I take them seriously with their, uh, their theory. Did this agent uh, cross any uh, Roma people in any way before this <laughs> happened? We don't know. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Is he yeah. perhaps getting thinner in any way? <laughs> yeah. Wait, one such case, a CIA case officer lost dramatically 300 pounds in a week. <laughs> now, the, the guy driving that car, it, didn't, it doesn't say where he was overseas yet, but it was in Romania, and he just ran over an old lady at yep. the last intersection. Yep. Agents are reporting si uh, sightings of a large shack with chicken legs <laughs> following them through the woods. Uh, so there's, there's one more really hilarious detail in this uh, New York Times piece here. It says, uh, the CIA has also cut the average wait time for injured officers at Walter Reed. It was up to eight weeks at the end of last year and is now less than two. So that's good. I mean, like they're, 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 getting, they're getting people taken care of. That's, that's important. But here, check this out. Displayed in Walter Reed is a painting by a CIA officer injured in one of the overseas episodes. The painting is a... It's just a, a black ring circled you're, you're, over and over and over on a white piece of paper. Chris, you're joking, but listen to this. The painting is a black canvas with a red splatter. CIA personnel being treated at Walter Reed have called it the gunshot. It signified, <laughs> it signified his feeling that we all wished we had been shot, a visible injury, so our colleagues would more readily believe us, said Mark Polymeropoulos, a <laughs> oh former my God, CIA officer who was hurt in Moscow. <laughs> but also, what, this, what a what shitty this painting. Really I mean, I understand it's like, you know, uh, you know art, art, art therapy or whatever, and you just got to put it on the CIA refrigerator because you're like, that's nice. But they're like, yeah, it's a, it's a black canvas with a big red uh, splatter in the middle of it. We... It's 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 uh we think it signifies being shot. I'm just imagining like all the old school like real hard bitten CIA guys like the Dulles brothers or the or Angleton getting Angleton, reports yeah. that their that their uh, field officers are like my head hurts. Can I have a tummy? Well, the thing is, those guys were uh all miserably sick, but that's because they destroyed their bodies with an inhuman amount of alcohol when they weren't all <laughs> dosing each other with LSD as pr a prank. And now they're now they're like, oh no. I Oh, I, I'm I'm struggling. Yeah, I, CIA my, my, my chronic my my uh, tactically induced chronic Lyme is acting up. <laughs> uh, CIA officers overseas report feeling symptoms of uh, uh, chills, shakiness, uh, nausea when not <laughs> being deprived of alcohol for over six hours. <laughs> uh, yeah, so there we go. Would not serve their their rationed four tabs a day. 
if we're exiting that segment, I'll tell a joke that is for me alone, and also I would imagine a few thousand people in the audience. Uh, I really hope China has found a way to make Yuri from Red Alert 2 real. A new comrade joins us. That one's over my head. Yep. Somebody out there will get that. Well, uh, I guess moving on, uh, I mean, the continuing story of the week is uh, Israel-Palestine, and I mean, it's just... This shit is like it, it's hard to even talk about because of how like disgusting and and madness inducing it is and like but also it's just like the overwhelming expectation that like you know uh, once again like we're 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 confronted by like the inhuman reality of the world we live in and like what we have to do about it is just scream into the void of being online and there's seemingly nothing you can do about it but like I mean but on the other side of it, it's like you have the official Twitter account of the state of Israel being like, y'all, thanks for the messages. We're feeling sad last night, but you know, you're, all the DMs we got really got us through it. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it's obscene and craven. And uh, to that end, I thought we would dip back into the, uh, the Barry Weiss canon because she's come out oh, with good. an article today that is uh, mm. world historically awful from uh, you know, her new perch at Substack. Which I gotta say, I know they're making it like like they're making a ton of money on Substack, and you know, obviously, like I'm not one of these people like who's uh, you know uh, uh, terrified of uh, Substack because it's like you know a, a new way for bad people to get published and get paid for it or whatever. It's avoiding like, accountability. What else is new? What else is new? <laughs> I mean, yeah, the hand wringing about sound Substack is one of my least favorite genres of of things oh, right so now. Annoying. Because at a certain point, you would just be like, well, why don't we we got to just take the whole internet offline. If that is your your problem, yeah, it's like like the ability to be published without like a huge industrial process is at is basically at the point that you were talking about. It's it's very enraging. And like if it didn't exist, like all like all the, all the people you hate would still be getting paid to share their asinine thoughts, or or they'd just be doing it for free. Like it it, it doesn't really make a difference. But I do wonder for people like Barry though, um, like it being in this more like cosseted environment on Substack. I think like do you think it pisses her off that like or like the, the, the people who court controversy that like they're now in this sort of uh her more a more hermetically sealed sort of like gated community through which like it's it's harder to make uh people mad at you which is sort of like kind of the point of doing all this i would i would have to imagine so or at least it, there must be some kind of gnawing feeling of the of the la- loss of friction in some way that for everyone, I would say ourselves included in the take industry is like part of the juice that me, you get out of it. Is the action people is the yell juice. at you and disagree with you. The action is uh, the yeah, juice. exactly. And to so now to be in this little garden where the only people there are people who have literally paid money to comment on your takes. Uh, yeah, I'm sh- I'm sure that there is a, a feeling of of loss. Well, I mean, let's help her out because um, uh, uh, this piece um, did revolt me, and now I'm going to read it on the show. The headline is. The bad optics of fighting for your life. When it comes to Israel, memes have replaced morality. Mm. And I, I mean, I like that you could, you could just like, you could, you could freeze that subhead without any other context, and it's basically true. Yes, for Israel, memes have replaced morality in that they I have mean, for memes. For most people, memes have, have replaced reality. <laughs> Israel certainly has memes, but they definitely don't have morality. It's, a, it's an entire meme economy. We, we, we only uh, participate in reality through the, through the medium of memes. Not through morality. What the fuck's that? Uh, She begins here. I am writing to you from the waiting room of my fertility clinic. Getting pregnant when you are gay is not so romantic. So we try to do little things to make it nice. Last night I took a bath. We watched Mayor of Easttown. Nellie opened a bottle of red. 
Then she grabbed my stomach and gave me a shot to trigger ovulation. Okay. Isn't that sweet? I'm also watching Mayor of Easttown. You go, damn, uh, you go, well, you go get drink some uh, ice water and watch Mayor of Easttown? Daughter. <laughs> I'm, drinking, I'm, I'm, I'm drinking a water with my daughter watching Mayor of Easttown. See, now I, you guys I, are do, basically doing the SNL skit that, uh, from oh, yeah? last Saturday. Oh, yeah, because that's, that's always fun. Although yeah. they really should have specified Eastern Pennsylvania because uh, Western Pennsylvania has an entirely different accent. Yeah. Go downtown, Pittsburgh, go see the Stellars. Yeah, no, we need, we need, we need a whole a, sketch that was basically like, what if a murder show was set in Pennsylvania? Well, I mean, that's what you need. Like, I mean, all the, like, like Mary Sound is, is such a copy of a copy of a copy. It's basically like Amer- an American version of Broadchurch. If you've ever seen that show, it's just like, ooh. I would just like, you know, once to have a detective from a small town full of secrets um, investigating a crime whose life isn't falling apart and, in fact, is doing great. <laughs> like, they just got married, <laughs> got a new house. Things are going wonderful for them. Their family likes them and uh, are just they're, they're nice and normal. But, uh, yeah, Mayor of Easttown is very, very paint-by-numbers. I mean, like, I'm, I'm, I'm watching it, so I guess it's working in that regard. But uh, not a great show, in my opinion. Uh, so it says here, uh, I plan to take the morning off. The doctor says that stress is not good for baby making. But sitting here scrolling through my phone, looking at the tsunami of lies, lies that have permeated every Instagram story and viral meme and every TikTok video and every popular Twitter account, I am weeping. <laughs> I mean, like, the absolute self-involvement of this, where, like, you begin talking about, like, oh, uh, I'm gay and it's hard to get pregnant and I'm trying. I'm trying to get pregnant. My doctor says you can't look at TikTok because it'll fuck up your like, <laughs> it'll fuck up your fertility cycle. But like, you just have to do it. You have to confront the lies that are on every Instagram page you follow. <laughs> the amount of replies I've needed to send linking to relevant Wikipedia pages. See, I'm weeping right now. I'm weeping. It appears that standing up for the right of innocent people to protect themselves from a genocidal terrorist organization has become extremely risky to one's brand. And so lies have replaced truth. Memes have replaced morality. Hashtags have replaced history. I am, of course, speaking about Israel. And again, like if you if you if you just like like froze that that paragraph bereft of any context or who's writing it, uh, it basically stands up because I mean, like it is risky to talk about a genocidal terrorist organization exterminating humans' life and maintain one's brand in the media. And of course, I am talking about Israel. <laughs> in the past forty-eight hours, according to the Israeli Defense Forces, more than fifteen hundred rockets have rained down on Israeli cities. Those rockets are being launched by Palestinian Islamic Jihad and by Hamas, which has controlled the Gaza Strip since Israel unilaterally withdrew from it and forcibly evacuated every last Jewish resident from the territory in 2005. Israelis have gotten used to living life in a kind of perpetual war. <laughs> Again, like that, it's just like the, that statement right there. It's, yeah, they've just gotten used to being in a state of perpetual war with the you know, population that it, their existence depends on subjugating. So, yeah, I mean, yeah you kind of have to them. at some point get used to that if that's yeah, what you're no, committing to. Exactly. And they have gotten totally used to it. And so has, you know, pretty much the rest of the world. Like, you know, I mean, for the most part who, you know, I mean, are probably not like, you know, thrilled by the idea of Israel doing what it does, but for the most part doesn't care. Um, and like, and by the way, like the existence and security of the only democracy in the Middle East, you know, in quotation marks, uh, depends on everyone getting used to this state of perpetual war. So Barry, I don't know what the fuck you're complaining about. It only serves your benefit, it only serves to benefit like the Zionist project if people just get numb to a state of perpetual war, which is what Zionism is. Yeah. I, I was just going to say that there is something about this, this moment where it really feels like uh, everybody is just running their script 
Like you watch yeah. Jen Zatsky's uh, like interviews around this. You can like literally see her her brain like open the file that says find Israel, run uh, right to exist dot exe, and then she just like blah 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 blah. The president's support for Israel's security, for its legitimate right to defend itself and its people is fundamental and will never waver. We condemn ongoing rocket attacks by Hamas and other terrorist groups, including against Jerusalem. We it feels, I mean, maybe it's just now such a, a long time of having heard these things over and over again, but this particular moment just feels like everybody has, has given up uh, trying to, to um, put any kind of uh, new or, you know, even even compassionate script on it. It's like, you you already know what the answer is when you ask, Jen P- Psatsky, what the uh, Psatsky, what the fuck is Psatsky? Psatsky, uh, Psatsky. It's Polish uh, accent, uh, one way or the other. Uh, what the Biden administration's answer to it? You could write the answer yourself, and she's not even going to pretend that you don't. You well, can't about that. And I feel like that's the same way about yeah, all, exactly. all these commentators. This Barry Weiss script, or, or, or like, or, or just like the, the general tenor of like having to talk about. I mean, like you know, being faced with this this issue again and again and again. It's just like the same algorithm gets run every single time. And if you're the U.S. State Department. Or the IDF, like you don't have to be particularly clever about any of this. You just run the script and continue to dominate, which is what like really matters. Like is is their power to continue to do uh, to kill people, you know, without any accountability or anyone being because like yeah, you have to run the gauntlet if you're if you're going to talk about Israel or even mention Palestine at all in the in the American media, uh, you have to run the gauntlet. Like you have to go through the algorithm of like, you know, like a labyrinth of like things that qualifiers and like statements you have to confront about Israel's right to exist, which is such a funny, uh, it, it, it always comes back to this like, oh, are you trying to say Israel doesn't have a right to exist? Which no, is it doesn't. A, no, no more no country has a right other to exist. State. That's insane. Yeah. yeah. And it's just like, and also like, does uh, people have a right to exist? Like people, perhaps more profoundly than states do. But the point is, it's like this is not really a debatable issue. It's not really what's like on offer here. It's like Israel does exist. That's the thing is their right to exist is their ability to assert that right. Which exactly the fact that we give them three billion dollars a year and they have fucking secret nuclear weapons means it exists. There's nothing you can do to undermine that power reality. Yeah, they're 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 a they're a nuclear armed state that is backed by the other most powerful nuclear armed state in the world, which allows them to continue to exist. But that existence is predicated on this state of perpetual war against a subjugated population that they have complete and total control over. Like, like that's what's but at he, issue here. But even just this, uh, this right to exist uh, conversation, which I've, with, it's like, so you, every time you run the response algorithm, it's like another layer of the Terminator exoskin gets shedded off and it becomes more and more bare. And I think that the just today when people are like finally speaking up, at least in the online discourse about like, what the fuck does right to exist even mean is maybe like one of the first times, at least in my life, that's a phrase that I've heard about Israel my entire adult life. And this is one of the first times that people are really, really like, what the fuck are you talking about when you say that? What does that mean? What is this? Re- and not just, you know, in well, I mean, it's, it's not meant, thing, but it's thing across the board. And I think that that is that sensation of the algorithm, algorithmic response being run bare. And you can kind of see the gears grinding against each and other. And because you can see like the gears of like the mechanical skull here. I mean, like the, the point of the algorithm of all these things is not to like pose an, like, a, like a, a moral or historical dilemma. It's to trap you in these cul-de-sacs to keep the mm-hmm. conversation or the interview or, or the, the, in, the, the, the party being questioned here. It's to trap them in these little like, uh, like culverts and like locks and dams to prevent them from like getting to the, what's really at issue here is like, you know, Israel's 
conduct towards their like mm. colonized, you know, uh, fucking occupied population, which they have, like I said, nuclear weapons and total control over a completely subjugated group of people who, I'm sorry, also have a right to exist and also have a right to resist their dispossession and they, like themselves being killed by, like I said, a powerful nuclear weapon armed state. And I'm like, I'm sorry, like, oh, like, I'm sorry if living in Israel means that you have to sometimes worry about a rocket landing in your backyard. But like, guess what? You've chosen to live there. And like the, I'm sorry, the entire project from which you've like dedicated your life and identity to is dependent on that that's that situation continuing to uh, be ongoing indefinitely with no resolution. I mean, that's the point of all of this. And that's the point of the algorithm is to avoid ever getting to that point. So, uh, right. And also, like, I'm sorry, this, this idea about. Gaza and rockets, and that they're they're indiscriminately firing rockets at civilians. It's like okay, I'm I'm sure they are, but like you know the rockets are what they have. So like to me, that's making an argument to give Hamas and a modern air force and anti aircraft. Absolutely, force. let's get like them if they if they had really, precision, precision guided munitions, so that if they had they precision laser guided munitions, uh, strategic uh, target evaluations. And by the way. The entire argument that the U.S. State Department makes for why we continue to give money and weapons to Saudi Arabia to, to help aid in their genocidal war in Yemen is that by doing so, it allows us to minimize casualties by providing them with the technology and support necessary to limit civilian casualties. So, I mean, that to me would be a good argument for why the, you know, how about we start funding the uh, Palestinian military to the tune of about a couple billion dollars a year, sell them our, the best that Raytheon and fucking all of our defense contra contractors have to offer. And yeah, then they could drop a fucking laser guided bomb like into the middle of, you know, uh, the, the, a military target. Um, so it's going on here. Uh, back to Barry. She says, uh, on Tuesday, Nelly was on a call with a journalist in Tel Aviv who abruptly hung up because the sirens started wailing. A friend sent a photo of his mother crouched in a bomb shelter. All okay, he said. Friends across the country told me about huddling with their crying children in safe rooms. It's fine, they insisted. But living like this is not fine. It will never be fine to have children killed by terrorists whose explicit aim is to kill them. Uh, by the way, like, what, what is the death toll on these rockets being fired from Gaza? I'm sure they've killed a couple people, but it's like nowhere near. I think it's like two or three. Yeah, yeah it's no, I mean, the IDF Air Force killed like probably 40 or 50 people in Gaza last night. Yeah. And like they can say, of course, as America does when we kill innocent people with bombs, like, look, it's, it's, if it happens... It's a tragedy, but our aim is not explicitly to kill innocent civilians. They just happen to be there. Well, I'm sorry. When you're dropping, mis shooting missiles and dropping bombs on a city, and Gaza is probably one of the most densely populated places on Earth, you are understanding that, like, by definition, you are going to be killing innocent women, men, women, and children. Like, so you can't tell me that, oh, we didn't mean to do that because you making the decision to attack militarily an a captive population with no means of escape or resistance is by de definition, making the choice to kill innocent people and kill a hell of a lot more of them than, you know, some vaguely defined terrorism or rocket attacks ever would or could. So it goes on. Uh, I'm just going to skip ahead for a minute. She says, uh, why is all this happening? Let's leave aside the terrifying Arab Jewish violence roiling cities and towns inside Israel's border. Okay, yeah, good. Let's, let's leave that aside, Barry. Let's leave yeah, aside the, the fact the that giant, we all saw uh, a guy the, get lynched on television last night. The what, uh, what you might call uh, evening of shattered windows that the <laughs> yeah. uh, Israeli mobs were doing. <laughs> the big picture reason this is happening and has been happening for decades, is that Hamas and Islamic Jihad are genocidal terrorist organizations that want to wipe Israel, a country the size of New Jersey that contains the large, largest oh, the Jewish community on earth. Oh, the small Oh, we're so scared. 
uh, so uh, off the map. That, that is their reason for being. Well, I mean, Israel's reason for being is doing the exact same thing to the people who right. are originally is, living there a, in 1948. They don't even fucking joke. Up, they, in Israel, they don't even mince words about it anymore. They, they, no. they have given up even the fig leaf and fiction of a two-state bullshit solution. They said, we are in the process of fully dispossessing Palestinians completely. That's the project. That's, that's their goal. I mean, it just goes on to you talk about oh, Hamas's charter. There is no solution for the Palestinian question except through jihad. Well, I mean, you know what? Uh, it seems like they're pretty much right about that at this point. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. To, can you really argue with them? I mean, like, like do you... I mean, do Hamas, you, Hamas came into prominence in part because Israel supported it secretly as, yep. a, as a, a way to uh, undermine uh, Fatah. Yep. which was their main, uh, the main representative of, of Palestinian political authority at the time. Like, they fucking created this monster so that they could have something to invalidate the Palestinian cause. And now they're just, they're just pointing to the, the very process that they have controlled at every point to throw their fucking hands up in the air and say, I guess we just yeah, got to no. keep doing it because we got to, we, we, our state has to exist. We have to have uh, uh, nightclub-themed pizzerias. We have to. I mean, like Israel and the West has like made the choice that like, um, yeah, guess what? Secular Arab nationalism is a vehicle for popular sovereignty for the Palestinian people. Uh, that's completely out of the question. So would you like Islamic Jihad and Hamas? I mean, we've made we've made the fucking choice. And guess what? Once you've removed Fatah, like is representing the Palestinian people, you know, like Hamas, guess what? Like. Their charter is what, like the self-defense of the pa Palestine, the appropriation of state, like the sorry, the apportioning of state services to like the captive population of Gaza. Again, like uh, states have a right to exist. Israel has a right to exist. Conveniently, Palestine isn't recognized as a state, so that you can do whatever you want to them. There, there, yeah. there are no rights there. Certainly not the right to resist violently their their dispossession and oppression, or through through military means or otherwise. Because guess what? Oh yeah, they don't have a military. They're terrorists. I uh, mean, the thing is, is that. This only makes sense for an American audience. This is only a complicated issue. This is only anything that is not what it appears to be if you have selectively uh, defined the humanity of the people involved. Whereas you see Israelis as like you and you see uh, Palestinians as, uh, as the other. That's the only way any of this makes sense because the right to self-defense, given what has gone on in Gaza, where it is a giant open-air fucking prison where... Uh, Israel controls every controls the entire distribution of resources, uh, controls water, controls electricity. There would be no case where you identified with the people in that situation where you would not say anything that they would try to do to resist that would yeah. be justified. And of course, Barry goes on to talk about like all what Hamas stands for is the total eradication of the Jewish people, you know, akin to like Hitler's Third Reich or whatever, which is, you know, I mean, that's, that's, no, that's they, bullshit. Yeah, they could pull that one it's off. Not, yeah, Even if like, they wanted to, it's an yeah. absurd thing. To it's a, it's it, not an on the agenda. It's absurd, but like, you know, like, oh, the Palestinian people are just so hateful towards the Israeli people. They just want dead Jews. They just want to kill Israelis. It's like, well, well, I mean, again, like it's, it's this imaginative leap. Like if you or someone you identified with found themselves in a similar situation, what kind of feelings do you think that they would have towards the people who were doing right. it yeah. every single fucking day? You think that they would turn the other cheek or that, they, that you would find some sort of nobility in continually being victimized and shit on and fucking like ground under the fucking heel of this? Like, like I said, 
nuclear weapon, nuclear weapon armed mega like fucking state backed by the largest military in the world who's doing it to you. And uh, and then not only that, but when you get angry about it, they tell you that you're 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 being the hateful, evil, violent one. Yeah. She goes here. Israeli's government, Israel's government has made mistakes that allowed these tensions to escalate. <laughs> OK, yeah. Uh, mistakes were made. Sure. It could have managed last week's unrest in Jerusalem more tactfully for starters. I mean, th- this is the American Zionist attitude toward Israel, right? It's like, yeah. they, they hit, like any criticism is beyond the pale, but like in order to maintain some sort of veneer of credibility for an American audience that demands it, which by the way, as you pointed out, Matt, the Israeli audience has passed, they passed this shit years ago. They got no need for any, anything even hinting at like a moral justification for what they do at yeah. all. They're openly calling for genocide and ethnic cleansing in the streets of Jerusalem and elsewhere. They're literally going house to house, attacking uh, Israeli Arab citizens in Israeli towns and cities all over the country right now. Like, it act, like a literal pogrom is happening right now. And but you, you think you think anyone in the Israeli government is condemning these people or or lamenting that they should go about asserting their right to dominate and dispossess the Palestinian people in a more tactful, perhaps a more polite, less aggressive manner? No, not at all. That's this is only for American audiences. And yeah. it's Barry. It's because they don't want to get yelled at. It, they don't want their menchies to get filled up. They don't want exactly. to have an awkward conversation at a fucking party. And that's what Barry is really writing about here. Yes. Um. She goes here. Uh, as you may have gathered, this complicated truth about a tiny country surrounded by enemies making hard decisions about how to protect its citizens doesn't sell. Hamas, its paymasters in Iran, and their allies in the Western press know this well. Okay, what allies, allies do Hamas and Iran have in the Western media? Uh, what journalists? What, yeah, what news outlets <laughs> are, are you fucking talking about? Yeah, that's well, that's why she's got to talk about memes and about posts because you can't really play the victim... Uh, and you can't really complain about unfair media treatment in the United States, where it is both parties and all media organizations are on the exact same page. I mean, like Joe Biden is president right now. Um, he just said yesterday that we will never like I will never apologize for Israel's right to defend itself. Right to defend itself is another hilarious, like not just like completely unmeaning statement that's only exists to like confound your like moral sensibilities. Um, and here, here's one really incredible th- uh, thing from Barry here, though. She says, casualty reports are hard to verify because Hamas controls the media, even the international press inside the Gaza Strip. Absolute bullshit. That's absolutely mm-hmm. not true about the international press in Gaza. Um, yeah, why? Uh, but it appears that more than 50 Palestinians have been killed. This was just last night, by the way. Some of these people are entirely innocent non-combatants, including children. This is an unspeakable tragedy. It is also one of the unavoidable burdens of political power, of Zionism's dream turned into the reality of self-determination. I mean, oh my God, she admitted. Yeah. I mean, this is like admirable, yeah, like but honestly. You, and for, but the thing is, she, like, for her, this is obvious. She doesn't like, think this that, yeah. Price she doesn't paying. think that but this is like a big... why should anybody else give a shit? Yeah, exactly. Why should she, anybody else say that that's worth, that that is worth the cost of having this Jewish state exist? Exactly. Well, nobody else gets that, by the way. Exactly. Nobody else exactly. gets a state based on ethnicity. And okay, and like, and, and and here's the funny thing, like where I'm going with all this is like, when Barry is not, um, you know, smearing, uh, you know, supporters of Bernie Sanders as anti-Semites, and like most of her job is, you know, promoting and defending Zionism for an American audience. Her other big area of uh, intellectual combat and like what she devotes most of her, uh, you know, 
labor and intellectual creative output towards doing is, you know, sounding the alarm about illiberal wokeness in American academia and education and the ways in which um, uh, people, you know, create for themselves or adopt for themselves um, identity categorizations, which they then use as like a shield to attack other people and like demand um, power over uh, the discourse or like intellectual life in this country. She is do I mean, like, does it give her a moment's pause that that is exactly what she does with the other half of her creative output? Because the entire point here of what she's saying is like, it's just so hard to be a Zionist. I can't even look at Instagram without seeing memes attacking me. Like the people that she um, uh, devotes her time combating on the illiberal left, right? It's the exact same thing as at work here. It's, it's you, you, you adopt an identity for yourself, but what that really means is that no one can get mad at me, and crucially, if anyone disagrees with me or makes fun of me, that's violence and, and hatred and needs to be like that. That, that needs to be like fought and confronted, yeah. and we need to talk yeah, about what, this. What this is, is her, serious what is her answer to these, these offensive memes that she sees? Uh, I don't know. Probably, uh, shit, probably like she did it in Colombia, uh, they should fire the people who made them. <laughs> I mean, this is what she's dedicated her life to. It's like, it, it's just for some reason, everything else... Everything else about, like, you know, um, ethnic or religious groups demanding a certain, uh, a certain standard of treatment for them or a certain deference to the issues that they care about is a liberal madness that is akin to totalitarianism for her. But, but save for Israel when they're killing scores of people um, to maintain their ethnostate, which depends on the ethnic cleansing of an entire population of uh, Palestinians of Arabs from the people, the people who were originally living in that part of the world when, you know, the United States just decided that Israel was going to be a country in 1948. I mean, it doesn't give her a moment's pause about any of this shit. And that's what why you're not? right, Matt. That's why ultimately the point of this entire article is just lamenting about how bad it is to be online. It's like all she's complaining about is not that, like, she has these noxious beliefs. It's that, like, Sometimes when on her social media feed, she is confronted with people who feel differently or are, for instance, feel mad about the fact that the explicit dream of Zionism requires, as she says openly herself, the killing of innocent children in the maintenance of an ethnostate. I mean, people tend to get pissed off about that. And and also just with that that really like gross framing about her tr like doing in in vitro or whatever uh, at the beginning like trying to have a baby that the the real tragedy here is that she is made to feel bad. Exactly, it. it's not that bad things are happening. It's not not that people are being brutalized or or whatever. It's like the real issue at the core of this is that I am made to confront the things that I feel and face those contradictions, and that makes me feel sad. And well, that's just all the, of her output. That's everything she has ever put. And it's honestly ninety percent of everybody's output on here because they got rid of journalism and replaced it with people's opinion because it's a lot cheaper. And now everybody can only talk about their experiences, which is being on the fucking internet and occasionally going to a brunch. That's all you can talk about. So everything becomes a question of manners and uh, feelings and your, your personal sense of comfort because there's nothing else to engage with. And for Barry, it's not so much that people think she's an asshole. It's that a certain type of person thinks she's an asshole. And by certain type of person, I mean anyone who is her age or roughly peer group in America. Like, that's what she's upset about because her entire career is basically just being patted on the head and given six-figure jobs by mummies who believe and think exactly as she does but it hurts her yeah. because everyone she follows on instagram is like free palestine and she feels attacked by that 
But I mean, yeah, like uh, it doesn't give her a moment's pause that like, you know, when she states openly that Zionism requires the displacement and ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian population of that part of the world. And, you know, Barry, like you can you can believe that it's a free country, but people are going to get mad at you if, if you say that openly. Because it's a horrible thing to fucking believe or, or support, or that if you like, as Matt, like you said, if you think that the nation of Israel is so important that like that all of this shit that they do to have it is worth it, then yeah, I think you should have to defend that, and you should admit, probably be made to feel uncomfortable in public. She she quit the Times voluntarily, right? Yeah, yeah, because everyone was so she mean. She wanted to, her. to get fired, but they wouldn't fire her, so she left because people were mean. So she went quit the times for a subscription. She like literally created a safe space for herself yeah. to write yep. for only subscribers. And now the thing that she is writing about is that how things outside the safe space are are too uh, traumatizing for for ding her, ding ding uh, ding ding. Know, she uh, wants yeah, a ide- safe ideology. space for Zionism in American culture. That's it. Yeah. And to the extent that like certainly not in our politics, because there is nothing. There is nobody with any power of any kind in this country who believes differently about Israel and Palestine. There's not a single person in power yeah. or in the media or whatever, or even in academia for that matter. I mean, mo- like most like Palestinian or like, you know, anti-Zionist academics, I assume, have just been like purged at this point, largely at the behest of oh, people yeah. like Barry. Somebody just got a uh, job kicked. Somebody was just uh, forced out of a position in a uh, Canadian university because the donor said, uh, nope. And which makes it all the more noxious that she's saying, like, it's so hard to have a brand these days and defend Israel. It's like, well, shit, it's hard to have a fucking job and be critical of it, Barry. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I'm just going to read the, the, the last few paragraphs here. She says, uh, for the past few years, leaders within the American Jewish community have been deeply worried about whether the Democratic Party, with the wind now in the sails of the squad, would go the way of labor under Jeremy Corbyn. That question seems tragically parochial. Like, what are you talking about now? Look at any of Joe Biden or Jen Psaki's statements on Israel-Palestine. You could have fucking written them, Barry. What are you complaining about? Like, they, all these people have gotten exactly what they want. There is no changing. I mean, I'm not saying, like, there's no point in uh, challenging it. But, like, as it currently exists, there is nothing about American power that is going to move one iota on letting Israel do whatever the fuck it wants to Palestinians. There's not, there's not even a, a gasp of air differently outside a few individual politicians. And by the way, AOC criticized Andrew Yang about this. She didn't criticize Joe Biden, who believes and says the exact same things yeah. that Andrew Yang did. <laughs> Andrew Yang is running for mayor. Joe yeah. Biden is the fucking president and leader of, the, of your party. You, th- yeah. you think that that would be like a little bit more important. But, and, of course, she mentions that. The world has gone Corbyn. Look online. When Andrew Yang, the frontrunner of the New York mayoral race, tweeted on Monday, I'm standing with the people of Israel, AOC rallied the online hordes. The anodyne <laughs> statement was, she said, utterly shameful. By the way, I'm standing with the people of Israel in the context of them literally lynching people in the streets and like, like throwing people out of their homes and burning their businesses. Saying I stand with Israel is not anodyne. That, yeah. is, not an anod- that is not an uncontroversial statement for a public figure to make. She says here, it turns out America didn't need a Corbyn. We just needed a Twitter and a few reckless demagogues in Congress. And now supporters of Israel, including many Jews, are so scared of getting bullied online that they've just decided <laughs> to sit in silence, hoping the lies will dissipate oh, on their own. No. How do you, okay, it sounds yeah. like a problem that solves itself. 
Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, yeah, just shut the fuck up and you won't be bullied. Yeah. <laughs> if you, hey, if you don't want to get people, yeah, have better opinions if you don't want people to get I mean, angry hey, at you. You know what? If it gives, you, if it makes you feel any better, just watch TV and see Israel do whatever it wants because none exactly. of this fucking matters. Exactly. They're they're, they're they're gonna get away with it. You want you want to feel bullied? Try living in East Jerusalem. You, like I said, you, you you go out to the store and you come home and there's some fat asshole sitting in your living room going, "Call the cops." What are you gonna do? It's my house now. You, th- you think you think do you think people in uh, the West Bank feel bullied? when they can't drive on certain roads or use water to grow fucking uh, anything because it's now all controlled and owned by the uh, Israeli occupation. I think that feels pretty otherizing. That feels pretty marginalizing. That, pre- that feels like pretty much like you're a victim of bullying, I would say. Uh, this is m- minor in this, but it is also just very galling that, that it has gotten to the point where she can just freely use Corbin as just like a, a, a Schenectady for the most virulent, like anti-Semitic racism. And once again, Corbin's gone. They shit canned him a yeah. year ago. He's done. Like, they, like, again, labor is completely purged for the most part. Any hint of anyone who is critical of the state of Israel. You've got... I feel like I've been saying this over and over again on this show. All of these people have got exactly what they want, and they're still not fucking happy. They still they, they, they got exactly what they want as in terms like power, policy, and what really matters, and the ability of uh, the state actors themselves, the people who represent them, to absolutely dominate, exterminate, kill, brutalize people who you don't feel that way about. But what they but that's not good enough. They want to be they want to be hailed as heroes and be called brave and moral. And courageous for do, for 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 doing all this shit. So that's why you got to go back to the first question that we were asking about Substack. Is when she reads her Substack comments and everybody's like, "Yeah, right on. You're absolutely right. Israel has the right to do everything it does." Then she's in her own twilight zone. Well, no, but like, she's but then gotten, she goes on then Instagram she's gotten and everything she's wanted. Yeah, she's so, but she's built that space for herself and then has to go and is finds it so dissatisfying to actually have everything reaffirmed that you have to go seeking out. Wow. All the places in which you you have uh, uh, where you don't where you get the, you need the, some the, friction. The friction. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Uh, what a, what a and sh- then she has to write her post about it. What a shock that a ardent Zionist would uh, curate for themselves a uh, let's say a space, a zone of control which they're in charge of, but then continually want to expand the borders of that space <laughs> over other people who feel differently. So yeah, she just says in clothing. The truth needs people who are willing to stand up for it. It needs people willing to publicly resist moral perversion and nihilism. People willing to fight for a sane future. And that's why I'm writing this, and that's why we're trying to start a family. Just, I'd be like, I'd be like <laughs> start your family in Israel if you love it so much. Move there. Honestly, but, yes. That wouldn't make her happy either. I mean, because it's, a, let's be honest, a pretty rotten country and shitty place to live. Just another quick rhetorical question. She began and ended that piece with saying that she saw the lies and mistruths that she needed to represent with facts and then ended it with facts. Did any part of that article have like a thing that she could claim was a non-truth or a lie or a fact or a misstatement that she refuted with a fact? Uh, probably. I mean, I don't know. I, sk- I, sk- I skipped a lot. I skipped over a lot of it. I mean, like, uh, it's just, I mean, like, only in the sense of like the algorithm that we're talking earlier, like the arguments yeah. and refu- refutations and sort of like the Hasbara line that you've heard a billion times before that like, you know, in their mind has like the veneer of like a logical argument or like historical credibility. But I mean, we all know, again, like, like these aren't arguments. They're not designed to be resolved in, in, through debate or otherwise. They're just designed to like, just like I said, keep people just walking in circles to avoid the obvious truth about like, look, Israel does exist. 
but like I, I'd be happy with them, whatever. Like you, you do whatever you want. I just don't think like we should be funding them to the tune of three billion dollars a year. If they want to exist, they should exist on their own, like every other fucking state. And as long as we are fucking, I mean, which is why, like, I mean, there's the other line. Oh, why are you complaining about Gaza, but not what China is doing to the Uyghurs or whatever? And it's just like, uh, f- like I'm, I'm not, our, my government that I'm a citizen of, like, isn't giving China billions of dollars a year to fucking put Uyghurs in concentration camps in the first place. So, like, you know, don't fucking, like, I, yes, it, Israel is a special case if you're an American because our government is, like, the most important reason why they do everything. They're allowed to do what every single thing they do. As Joe Biden said back in the 80s, if Israel didn't exist, we would have to make it. There's no apology to be made. None. It is the best $3 billion investment we make. Were there not an Israel, the United States of America would have to invent an Israel to protect her interest in the region. (sighs) Oh, right. He did say that. That's incredible. He was like, I'm tired of apologizing. We got absolutely nothing to apologize for, man. It's the greatest deal you can get. Protecting our interests in the region. Ugh. I know that's not the point of that clip, but if you guys watch that clip, my, it's just every time you see him from the '80s, my man is plugged up on the on the top. <laughs> oh of his man, dome. yeah, he was totally bald. He had the he had the complete he had the shine going on. He had the diffuse flexy yes. yeah. hair uh, loss, and then he just decided, nope, I'm gonna. Ha-. To me, that's one of the most psychotic things you could do. Is you're famous. And you just decide to get hair plugs, and then what? People are just supposed to pretend <laughs> oh, it that you back. don't look completely different? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that about uh, does it for today's show. Um, we do, as we tease on Monday, we do have a more in-depth yeah, uh, definitely. I'm not, interview yeah. that Felix is planning uh, with a journalist guest that is going to be more of uh, a, a serious in-depth dive, not just talking it's about not, Barry Weiss good, about Yeah, this. like uh, us m- making fun of annoying Zionists that we encounter online or the bullshit that you have to see in the media. This will be a, 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 more, a more serious and substantive conversation rather than just us... Um, making fun of this dumb idiot and i i believe uh i believe that'll be lined up for sometime early next week okay so that that will be coming soon all right guys uh till next time yeah bye 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 everybody Get your tickets to prevent the best Leave it, leave it, leave it,